most people yes their way right into average. Extraordinary happens by saying no to almost everything but the essential. Welcome closers. This is the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you live. I'm your host, Jordan Wayla, and this is the place to come for weekly interviews with world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who open up and share their secret sauce so that you can apply their knowledge to grow your property management empire. Whether you manage 100, 1,000, or 10,000 units, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. Don't forget to join us in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group where we talk profit, share resources, and ask podcast guests follow-up questions after the interview. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I'm talking with Jay Papasan, the Vice President of Publishing at KW and co-founder of the Papasan Properties Group, and most importantly, co-author of The One Thing, The Surprisingly Simple Truth Behind Extraordinary Results. If you're listening to this, you've probably already heard about and or read this book. It has had wide distribution for good reasons, and we're going to get into some of the philosophy and some of the practical application from the book. Welcome to the show, Jay. Hey, thanks for having me. Super happy to be here. Well, Jay, I just want to start here. Give me some background. What was the inspiration for writing The One Thing? It came backwards. We kind of came at it sideways. We've definitely started other books with a lot more purpose and intention. Uh, we were working on a course at that time. I was running the university within Keller Williams Realty for Gary. And we were working on a course for agents to grow their business to where they could hire their first assistant. Long story short, Gary took it home for the weekend wanted to write a new introduction, came back with a short essay called The Power of One. Hmm. And we read it and I was getting ready to edit it. And we looked at each other and I said, I think this is a book. And he goes, I think it's a book too. And that started about a four and a half year journey where we, that was our first non-real estate book. We'd written books for investors. We'd written books for real estate sales. Um, but the one thing I really believe, you know, from a publishers, I've been doing this for 20 years it, it absolutely exemplifies what Gary does best. He has a vision and then he understands, I will give more resources and time and energy to the thing that matters most than anyone else. So prioritization is kind of his superpower. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really what this book is about. Like how do we make the best possible investments of our time? So in the book, Gary talks about the millionaire real estate agent being the one thing for a period of time and how that had a profound impact on the name recognition and the credibility of Keller Williams. How did the one thing become the one thing per se? How was it obvious? I'm assuming that the one thing was the one thing for a period of time. What was obvious that it was time for using that as the next vehicle for another inflection point? You know, it wasn't as obvious a match for a real estate company for obvious reasons, right? Real estate uh, franchise company, a book on building a great business in real estate, obvious choice. Right. Um, but so much of our training is about becoming the best you possible, about increasing your productivity, about being a better business person. And so the one thing just hit a lot of our other trainings and pulled it together. So the way Gary put it, it's like we have this whole shelf of books, like 11 books that we've done. But the one thing could be the book that you read before any of them. Before you read The Millionaire Real Estate Agent, read The One Thing. 
because it's an approach to success. And you can use that for that. Before you read The Millionaire Real Estate Investor, read the one thing, because you could use that approach for investing, right? Hold, right? Which is about buying, holding, right? Rental properties, which is a lot of what you do. Mm -hmm. um, you could read the one thing and it would, you go, oh, this makes total sense. It's all about attacking the most important priorities and giving them more time and more airtime in your business. One of the things that you talk about in the book is just kind of recognizing that there's a really universal constant of the feeling of busyness, of just waiting through a day and getting to the end of the week. And you know that you did a lot of stuff, but you're not sure exactly what it was. Um, and it's easy to kind of like get a high off of that, but we know it doesn't really correlate to, to productivity or to, to really the accomplishment that matters. So like walk me through the concept of the myth of productivity that you talk about in the book. Sure. I think that um, we talk about everything doesn't matter equally. I think a lot of us run around and I can imagine um, we have about seven rental properties um, and one vacation property. And it's pretty easy to get caught up in the checklist, especially in the beginning of all the things that have to be done to make that property ready. And you can get lost in the details. And there are days where, I mean, I'm, when I'm not on my best game, I'm checking stuff off my list, but I'm not checking off the most important stuff. I'm just doing stuff so I can check it off. Mm -hmm. And I want my list to be shorter. Um, the reality is if I did the handful of things that actually matter, all the other stuff really wouldn't matter. They're just urgent. They're not actually important. You've got this kind of trap that we fall into where we have lots and lots of tasks to perform and we run around doing them and that's a busy day. But as you put it, activity and productivity aren't the same thing. When you're doing your priorities, you're actually being productive. And most of us would be better served, right, to do the handful of things that matter. And our measuring stick for that was Pareto's principle. Most people have heard the 80-20 rule, and I'm sure you've talked about it on your podcast. Sure. 20% of what we do gives us 80% of the results we want. Um, we just want to take the 20% of the 20% of the 20% until you get to the first thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this ruthlessness sounds great, but for a lot of folks, they feel like, well, I can't afford to do that. I got, I got to pay the bills. I got to um, take care of the basics. That sounds luxuriant, Jay. I mean, what's, what's your basic response to that, that notion? I hear a variation of that. I love that you brought that up. A lot of people say, oh, Gary can act that way because he's Gary, right? He's got an <laughs> army of virtual assistants and EAs and all that stuff. And I think Gary would say, Gary got to be Gary because he behaved that way. Because he was ruthless about staying in the priorities, um, he was able to grow his business so that he could afford to have administrative help and et cetera. And it just becomes a snowball in the other direction. Um, it's a choice. I think when we choose to try to please everyone and do everything, we are arguing for an average life. Mm. And when you actually focused on the priorities, some people are not going to like you. Hey, you didn't do my thing. Mm -hmm. you know, mm. This didn't get done. Um, but if you're constantly doing the priorities, you're going to create some little fires that don't get put out. And it'll create a little bit of chaos. Um, but if you're able to live with that, you'll actually leapfrog other people and that will enable you to actually build a business where other people are doing a lot of those things for you. You're caught up in doing it all yourself. You'll, it's very hard to get there. Talk to me about the role of ego, Jay, specifically when we're doing things that are a known quantity that you feel like you know how to do them, it feels good. There's some level of risk involved with the category of aspirational work. And in the same way, when we think about hiring, if you want to be the smartest person in the organization, it's going to be a glass ceiling in your ability to grow. How does that aspect of ego relate to this? I love the question. That's probably the first time I've been asked because we don't address it directly except in the second chapter where we talk about no one succeeds alone. 
I know that Dr. Covey wrote about this. He talked about the genius surrounded by a thousand helpers. And if you build your business around you and only you, and you become irreplaceable in it, um, you won't actually have a business. I think the simplest way you can define a business is you're moving from I do it, right? Self-employed. We do it to having a team, but you still have a job to they do it. And that's actually business ownership. And you make it about you at every turn. um, It's going to be very hard to grow past whatever your ceiling of achievement is. I know organizations that have been built around a personality versus a brand, and they can die when that personality quits, goes to the competition, or just retires for whatever reason. So um, Gary has made it very uh, clear in our Keller Williams business that he's willing to be the interesting person, right? The Bartles and James, right? You can be the, I'm a Mac and I'm a PC. Like you can be the interesting person at the front without making it all about you and succeeding through others. I love the framework of the one thing on a team. If I know what the one thing for the business is and I have someone who's in sales, well, they're all about lead generation and I can hold them accountable to how many contacts did you make, how many conversions did you get, and how many sales did you net. And I can have someone on the admin side, and they're going to have their KPIs. And you know what their 20% is, their one thing is on top of that. And it brings wonderful clarity and accountability. But if all of the number ones line up under you, you're self-employed. So that's a choice. I mean, I like it. My wife always reminds me, I don't need you on a white horse today. (laughs) so just says like this is us in our relationship like i want you to listen to me you don't i don't need you to save me let's collaborate but i'll go do it yeah Uh, i think a lot of us have this need to always be riding in on our white horse to save the day and that's very much about ego and self-image it's not about business yeah absolutely and i think related to that is just getting clear in the playbook that you're running the level of aspiration you have around growing an organization within my industry there's a subset of business owners where managing 100 200 properties is a great lifestyle if they own that and they optimize for profit but conflating that with this guilt trip of feeling like they've got to get to a thousand properties when it's not really a fit for the ultimate outcomes they want that's where some tension comes from. I'm sure there are some parallels there as well with with your agents. But I do also want to ask you about the power of discipline and habit. When I hear discipline and habit, I got to tell you, the first thing that comes up for me is like force and and kind of (laughs) effort. But you mentioned clarity, the C word. Clarity is not a byproduct of struggle. Clarity is just clarity, right? There's a simplicity and a lightness to it. Talk me through kind of this discipline and habit framework that the book espouses. Okay. And I'll just, you can just totally edit this out, but I'm going to go back only because you said something that's really significant. And I see this a lot and I'm just going to, I'll make my little soapbox moment. And then I've written it down. Hit it. Discipline. The model that you build your business on um, will either help you grow or it'll constrain you. So I hear lots and lots of people say, I just want a small, comfortable business. That is fine until you need it to be bigger. And we also bump into people. Hey, how's it going, Jordan? How's it going, Jay? Whatever that is. And you say, hey, um, I'm kind of reinventing my business. That's often code for they didn't build it on a big enough model. So we've always advocated in all of our books, and this is very much Gary's just framework. What's the biggest model that we can imagine working from? Let's build it on that and we can stop anywhere we want. So the millionaire real estate agent, the millionaire real estate investor, a lot of people are like, I don't want to be a millionaire. Great. Go be the $100,000 a year agent. But if you start with this model, you could look up and decide to go further. 
And what people misunderstand and they misinterpret is they think that this is what I'm a, a circle. I've got this little pie. That's what I want. That'll make me happy. They're not thinking about sending their kids to college. They're not thinking about, well, what if their kid got accepted to Juilliard? Um, what if their parents got ill? What if their parents' retirement fell through? What if someone that they loved is like a family member needed their help? I often think when we plan for our future, most of the time the planning fallacy works the other way. We, we try to do too many things than we can actually do. When it comes to financial planning and business planning, we almost always think too small. We can't imagine all the opportunities we would have to do the things we love. It's not about buying cars. Money is good for the good it can do. You can grow your business and give it all the way to charity. But why would you constrain yourself with this idea of I want a small, comfortable business? So if you can't tell, that's a total soapbox moment. I, I, I love it. I got to respond. Yeah, I mean, so the thing that comes up for me is the Dan Sullivan quote that money is a capability. That really resonates with me personally. And in relation to what you just said, I think that the common thread there is there's a difference between knowingly choosing something that is at a smaller scale versus settling and compromising to do so. But for me, the common thread and what I'm passionate about is profit. What is dysfunctional and disinteresting to me is having a small, unprofitable model and telling yourself, well, if I only scale it to 10 times, then somehow the profit will come. The discipline <laughs> of having profit is the same discipline that you're going to have to, that, that's going to bite you in the butt later on. Discipline. I mean, I just got to comment on that. That's gorgeous. That's brilliant. You go write your book on that alone. I got into business and I was naively thinking that the people who made the most money were the best at growing revenue. I got the thinking that millionaires were about how much income they made. And it's just the opposite, right? There is a, you can't be profitable without revenue. You can't build wealth without any income, but it's really about expense management in both cases. If you have a spending problem in your personal life, getting a higher salary is not going to fix it. You're just going to have a bigger spending problem. And the same for a business. If you have a small unprofitable business, chances are you'll have a big unprofitable business. If the model is negative, it's usually going to scale negative. And people think, oh, economies of scale. We looked at this, we literally did a model with a pizza company that we were looking to acquire. And we're like, you're losing money. Because yes, but if we get five, five times bigger, we will make money. And we did the math. It's like, no, you're going to lose five times as much. Nothing that you've built it on actually scales to a lower cost. So this is the classic quote, right? We, we lose money, but we make it up on scale. <laughs> mathematically, that, that doesn't work. The corollary, though, for the guys that are really high growth is asset value, right? Like, yeah, we're losing money, but we're going to lose money up until this big exit. And we're going to get this fat multiple because we're at scale. And I, I, to me, again, that's like a 1% or 2% or playbook. Technically, it could be true. But is that realistic for your average business owner? I don't think so. So to each his own, if I'm knowingly going to play the venture capital game of getting eyeballs and users and parlaying that into some multiple value, um, God bless you. I'd rather play the get wealthy for sure game than to play those low percentage odds. It's very sexy to think about being a billionaire with a helicopter that takes you to work, but I'd be happy just to be able to have zero financial worries and to be able to use money for the things that are really important to me. That could be a billionaire too. Um, it just might be a little slower than they're, they're, than they're asking for. I love it. So back to discipline, discipline. Thank you. discipline and habit. Yeah. Why is discipline and habit not just force of will? We separated those concepts in the book into a whole chapter on um, discipline and a whole chapter on willpower. So discipline is not punishment if you talk to a child. And most adults kind of think of it, it's my mental willpower to do what I need to do. 
Discipline is actually training yourself to do something until it's habitual. And if I had to kind of sum up our book, if you could figure out the activity that most lined up with your eventual success in whatever it is you're pursuing, and you could make that thing into a habit, then you are on a trajectory that's going to be going up, up, up. That's an essential skill for success is identifying the thing that really matters most and just making it a habit. And building a habit isn't easy, but once you build it, it's kind of like brushing your teeth. I had I have teenagers, right? I can tell you for a fact, it takes 10 to 13 years to ingrain that habit with a lot of help, right? Did you brush your teeth? Let me smell your mouth. You know, it's like, you just they're going to fake you out. But as an adult, it takes almost no energy to do one of the things that extends our life and it does all these wonderful things. Same thing for business. So if you build those habits, so one of the big things that a lot of people remarked on the book was, we actually found research, habits don't form in 21 days or 30 days. On average, it takes 66 days. And so we're doing this interview at the end of the year. I don't know when it's coming out, presumably sometime in December, January. People are going to be doing New Year's resolutions. My encouragement to them, if they're listening to this episode then, would be it's probably going to take you two to three times longer than you think to make that resolution stick. Start planning at least in terms of 66 days, and it may take longer. Um, The research showed as little as 18 and as many as 254 days before it became a habit. But 66 is average and it's a good standard. So you're going to have to focus on that thing for longer. But once you get to that place, then you can start saying, well, what's the next thing I can do? Uh, Just be patient, though. That's discipline to me. Willpower is when do we have the mental energy to say yes to what we want to do? Long chapter, lots of research, and we can go deeper if you want, but I'll just hit straight to the bottom line. We have the most willpower in the morning. So if it's really important to you, right, that one thing for your business or your personal life, research suggests that the morning, whatever that represents to you, when you regularly wake up, you're going to have the most mental energy to say yes to that. Therefore, that would be the best time to do that activity. And I'll just give you an example. In sales, almost all sales coaches would tell people, you know, do your calls between like nine in the morning and 12. And I remember from the outside in going like, I'm writing about this. I'm hearing all these people saying, yep, this is when we tell people to call. Without the research, they had backed into this. Most people aren't home then, right? It's a horrible time to call clients. It's a great time for someone to dial a phone number though. So if the activity is picking up the phone and calling, I'll actually do it then, even if it's less effective. And when people try to fake those things out and say, hey, I'm going to call in the afternoon. Yeah, you might get more connects per dial, but you're less likely to be dialing. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I I love that. And I can see the nuance there. Talk to me about the discipline, the willpower of saying no to other people that you like and know and that want little bits of your time. And the next thing you know, you're running ragged. Do you have any kind of consistent approach to saying no to situations where you're kind of marginal and could go 50-50, but if you say yes, it's going to just blow your schedule? Yes, I do. I I wanted to have a no answer for there because it would have been cute, but I couldn't think of the right way to phrase it. (laughs) Um, Saying no is is a massive power tool in our quiver. And most of us don't want to. We said it was the number one thief of productivity in the book. Most people yes their way right into average. Extraordinary happens by saying no to almost everything but the essential. Most of the time, if you're a people person, you don't want to say no because you don't want to let people down. So we, I've taught whole seminars just on saying no. Why is that important? An illustration. Are you married? Yes. Okay. When you said I do, I remember this feeling. There was this deep sense that that was a different kind of yes, right? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Bigger commitment. Yeah, right? for, your, for sure. Right. Because by saying yes to this human being, theoretically, we're saying no to every other female in the world, right? Yeah. It doesn't always work out that way, but that's the intent. So if we're really making a commitment to our one thing, we are saying no to everything else. And the irony, when we talk about focus, most of us think that our brain spotlights what we're looking at. It puts a spotlight on that thing that matters most to us. Focus actually works the opposite. It makes everything in the black ground disappear. So even the way our brain focuses is more about no's than yeses. It's a huge skill. If you want to focus on something, right, to give it more time and energy, to give it your all and get the most out of that relationship or engagement or whatever that is, you have to say no. So here's a couple of just really quick strategies. We talk about in the book, time blocking. We may go into that. But if you know when your most important activities, you put it on your calendar, makes you about three times more likely to do it. But I use this script. Hey, Jay, can you get together at 10 tomorrow? Um, no, I've already got another commitment then. Could we do it at noon? So basically, I've blocked that time. That's writing time. So it's always a no for me. But I don't say the words no. I say yes on my timeline. So you can always deflect it to a time so you can control your time. Say, hey, you know what? I'm pretty much always booked in the morning. Is there an afternoon that would work for you? Most people aren't going to say, what are you doing? And don't ever say, I'm doing something for myself, because then they'll expect you to cancel it. They're assuming you're working with someone else. All right, I've already got an important commitment at that time. I could do it before or after. If you give people options, I do no's a lot. Like a lot of people ask me for advice on writing. And I have an hour-long video on writing. If they watch it, then they can circle back and ask for an appointment of my time. And it's just 30 minutes. The video is an hour. But I would say out of every 10 people that ask for time, only three ever circle back. So by saying yes with a condition, yes, but you'll need to do this first. And I tell them it's not just a barrier. It's a strategy, a tripwire to say yes to it. Um, One, if they watch that video, we'll have a better conversation. If they're not willing to invest in one hour for their own education, they're going to be wasting my time. So we can be strategic. Hey, can you do this for me? Absolutely. How about next Tuesday? That's a standard line. Next Tuesday, that could buy me seven days. Or it could buy me a minimum of a weekend in a day, right? It just says, how about next Tuesday? Most people are totally fine. They have all this urgency. The urgency isn't for you to do it now. It's for them to know that you got it. So that's just three quick strategies. It's all about how we say yes, but we have to say yes on our terms. So we aren't, in fact, saying no to our priorities. I'm going to give you just a really poignant example. And I sometimes struggle to describe this. My wife taught a class on the one thing. And I'm in the audience and I'm coming up to congratulate her. And she was talking about how she had said yes to the big stuff in her business And it still managed to be a great mom and all those things. And so a husband and wife came up and the mom said, you know, I'm uh, I really want to do what you've done, but I'm afraid I've got um, a problem saying no, right? I'm saying yes to the PTA. I'm saying yes to all those things. And the husband's staying right there. She goes, oh, you don't have a trouble saying no. She goes, what do you mean? He goes, you say no to your family every day. And I was like, whoa. And there was like right in real life without any prodding, it showed up. What we say yes to, we're saying no to other stuff. And are we conscious of what we're saying no to when we say yes to other people's priorities? I am really clear. I want to have a great business, but not at the expense of my family. 
And so I'm always saying yes to those things first and making sure that those are in concert. So the yes, no game is a huge life skill to learn. And it's a huge success skill. So is it fair to say that your conviction and clarity around what the one thing is, is pretty proportionate to your ability to say no? If, if you're murky about what this big, ambiguous... Like a dating analogy, okay? You said, I do to somebody. That's a pretty big, enthusiastic... I hope it's a big, enthusiastic yes. It should be. It was right? for me. If you're just going out on a blind date with someone and a better option comes, you might cancel the blind date. You've never even met them. It's the same with other priorities. We just don't often stop to think. I mean, all it takes is like a 30-second timer. All right, hold on. Let me think about that. Play some music in the background, you know. Fast forward 30 seconds. You're like, oh, you know what? I probably should say no to that. But we just don't stop. We reflexively say yes. But I do think that if we are really enthusiastic about something and we say yes to it, the world notices. The marriage is the easy one. When I was 1997, I ran the New York Marathon. I was trying desperately to quit smoking. And it was really important to me. And I'll tell you, running a marathon for the first time, I'd never run more than three miles before I started it. I had three months to train. My life revolved around training and eating because I was like shoveling pasta, right? To run all the miles. But most people have experienced some period of life. Maybe it was their finals in their last semester in college, um, some project that they were consumed with and everything else had to revolve around that. That's what it feels like. Can you bring that kind of energy to the really boring stuff that makes us successful? Most of the stuff that makes you really successful at whatever you do, property management, real estate sales, investing, whatever, is kind of repetitious and it can get very boring. But can you bring that level of energy to it and the world will notice that you're on a mission and they'll get out of your way. Do you want to network with other grade A entrepreneurs that are ready to talk more than simple day-to-day operations? Are you interested in expanding your business through cutting-edge sales, marketing, and growth strategies? If so, you need to be at the 2019 PM Growth Summit held in April in Austin, Texas. Check out at pmgrowsummit.com. Learn what the difference is between hope and actual results. It's called taking action. That's what we do collectively at the PM Grow Summit by bringing in world-class speakers, world-class attendees. Get more information at pmgrowsummit.com. So I do want to talk to you a little bit about performance management with off time, with that time that you're taking with your family or or personal time. Some people tend to think about that as time that you've earned. It's like the reward that you've earned. And other people think of it more like an athlete would think about an ice bath or a sports massage. It's a performance management activity to be able to be at your best when you're you're refocused in your own life. How do you manage that rejuvenation time to kind of be at peak when you're in the zone? Well, I think the first thing that goes on our calendar, and we talk about this in the book, is your vacation time. If you're really going to succeed at an extraordinary level, you've got to rest. That's when, like, think about workouts. Um, your muscles grow after you break them down, but you have to sleep and rest to actually get that recuperation. So on a big meta level, I do this. Everyone on my team is instructed to do it. Um, I launched the year knowing where my vacations are, and my work goes around them. If you try to vacation around your work, you'll end up with a laptop on the beach. I see it way too often, especially for people who own their own business or self-employed. Done it. 
If you go up there and you say, you know what, I'm going to go to ACL in August and I'm going to go to the beach in April and you have that marked off on your calendar and someone says, hey, can you do this? You say, nope, um, I'm already on vacation then. Could we do it the week before or the week after? It's like a rock in the middle of a river. The water will flow around it. If it's really important, you can make adjustments, but it's a discipline, right? You're putting something there, just like your time block in the day. This is my one thing time. I can make things go around it if I make that commitment and I make it first. If I haven't made any concrete commitments, I I haven't really, there's nothing for things to flow around and you just don't end up vacationing. So that's on a big meta level. On a daily level, um, I made a commitment a long time ago to get up early in the morning so I could work out have a healthy breakfast. That's when I get to read. And if you're really committed to waking up, I can stay up late. Like last night was um, the semifinals of fantasy football. And I was going to stay up to the very end of the game. I got eliminated. Thank you, Cam Newton. But it was by two points. But I stayed up later than I normally do. And, And I was tired this morning, but I got up at the same time. So I will go to bed earlier tonight. It doesn't mean if you commit to early mornings, doesn't mean you don't ever stay out late. You just don't do it three nights in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to be a night owl, but I moved that morning time because that's when I have willpower to do the things that are important to me, like work out and read. And I do some business planning with my wife then. So I think on a, on a regular level, sleep is huge. I got to interview a guy named Charles Poliquin. He has coached more gold medalists than anyone in the world. He does Olympic weight teams. And I asked him, what are the pillars of health? And we were talking about you know, diet, stress, exercise. And after a lot of talk, it's like sleep's number one. If you aren't getting your rest, it's very hard to perform at your highest level. If you aren't getting your rest, you tend to have more cravings for food. So it's hard to stay on your diet. Mm. It is a 1% or a 2% right up to 20%. It's a very foundational. So on the big level, make sure you're going on vacation. On a day-to-day basis, make sure you're getting enough sleep. I'm not going to tell you when to turn it off. I love my job. I try to turn it off between five and six so I can have dinner with my family every night. I work late sometimes, but if I show up and I'm focused, I don't have to work late all the time. So this is really interesting to me because this is one of those topics that feels a little soft and squishy. Oh, I should get sleep. Oh, I should work out. You know, hey, great idea, buddy, but I don't have time for that. But it is such a recurring theme for top performers and it seems to be the, the gap between long-term thinking versus short-term thinking. Like it seems to be true that within the next month, if you just go hard, that that would possibly be the most productive thing to do. But in the long run, it's absolutely not. You mentioned getting up early. Do you buy into the idea that getting up early is just kind of a, a universal best practice? Or do you think that it's more on an individual one-on-one level and some people can legitimately be productive by focusing on those same productivity hours from, let's say, 11 to 2 a.m.? The one thing I hear a lot, I'm in the camp that says, um, don't work longer hours, work smarter, right? It's not about, everybody gets 24 hours a day. Why does one person make a billion dollars a year and the other person make 50,000? It's about what they do in that time. And there are people out there, and we don't have to name them, that have made their whole platform about, you need to hustle. You need to work longer hours. If you want to be an entrepreneur, you have to be willing to out-hustle everyone. I think that's horrible advice. Um, If you're passionate about your business, you're going to work longer because you love it. It's not about proving that you can work till 10 o'clock every night because you will crash, you will burn. It happens all the time. So um, I got to see Dave Ramsey speak. 
And he was talking about meeting, I, I believe, Warren Buffett. And he asked him his favorite story of all time and his favorite book. And he said, it's the tortoise and the hare. Every time I read it, I think, well, the hare should absolutely win this, but the tortoise does every time. So this idea of working long hours in a sprint, um, yeah, you do get a lot done, but it's not sustainable. And all extraordinary things are built more along the lines of a marathon, not a sprint. You get a project done in a sprint. You can't build a business that way. So I love it. You said long-term, short-term. That's exactly right. I don't want to have a great year. I want to have a great career. Mm, I love that. I don't want my year to cost me my career or my health or my family. So you got to play the long game. And it's not as slow as people think, man. I've lapped a lot of my contemporaries by just knocking over that first domino every day. Mm, I love that. I mean, the way I think about it is that in many cases, it's not that I don't have enough time. It's that I have so much time that I don't feel the need to be accountable to how I'm spending it. The quality of that meta thought, that meta conversation around how each hour is being spent, that's really one of the biggest opportunities for optimization. This book represents that at a really macro level. I'd love to hear feedback from you on some of the results and some of the stories that have come out of the one thing. It's been How long has the one thing been out for now? Um, five years. I, you did ask a question. And just in case someone's listening and wants to, he didn't answer that question. I've done a lot of research on waking up early. So you remember that? You think it's a universal truth? Yeah. So um, there's larks and there's owls. And there is some genetics to prove that some people are much more predisposed to being productive at night. And they base the theory on the idea that when we were hunter-gatherers and we were all on the plains without shelter, there was the group of people who worked during the day and there was always that group of people who sat by the fire to keep everyone safe. Okay. So there is this group of people who actually do have more energy. So I I said it very purposely, whatever represents morning time to you is when you're going to be most productive. Um, If everybody thinks that they're the exception to the rule, um, they'll be exceptionally average. So I would rather play the odds. I'm actually probably closer to an owl than a lark, but I had small kids and they taught me to wake up early and I decided to keep the habit. Because what I have found, even if my natural disposition is to get creative later at night, I'll consistently do it in the morning and nobody is calling me or texting me mm. before wow. 9 a.m. Mm. So there's a lot less interference. Even if I'm at 70% capacity, my focus is closer to 100% because there's just a lot less input. I'd say I've done a lot of research, maybe not enough to write a book, but enough to feel pretty confident in that answer. There are people out there that are night owls, but I would say, when can you work when no one else is going to ask for your time and you still have energy? Whatever that answer is becomes your productivity time. Totally makes sense. And since you brought it up, I got to ask, being that you are a public face for this idea and this message and you're focused on your one thing, do you still battle or deal with some of the effects of being in this age of smartphones and constant stimulation? I know for myself, I, I feel like I'm pretty clear in the fact that my ability to read has been deprecated on some level as a result of how much is being just stuffed into my brain all day long. Do you deal with any of that as well and any, any practices around, best practices around managing technology? It's a real threat. I mean, I think that we don't have to know as many facts because we can always Google, right? It's not, there's some of the way we've learned in the past is going to be different. Um, I do think, and there's, there's a great book called The Shallows, and I'm trying to think of the author's name. I can't think of it, but he talked about being a literature major, working on long form, reading 800 page novels and stuff. And then um, he became a blog writer. 
and he lost the ability to read long books. And it's what we train ourselves to do. I think it's a habit. If we learn to read um, at the surface, we can go very broad, right? That's a lot of the skimming we do online and on our phones is we're reading half the article and then clicking on a link, opening a new tab and going to that thing. And that's a lot of surface knowledge. Um, I believe the opportunity for the future, because so many people are playing that game now, and there's nothing special about having lots of surface knowledge, right? I can Google almost any fact I need, but going deep into a topic and becoming an expert on it, reading deeper into things is a harder skill in this day and age, and that's a differentiator. So I work hard. I set goals around reading books. I won't kid you. I think my attention span's gotten shorter. Um, I do try to have times when I'm not on my phone. Um, I try to leave it on my desk when I first get home. During fantasy football season, I'm really bad. I'm really competitive. So I'm always checking to see if somebody's hurt or whatever, and I can get an edge on my friends. But when that's over, like I just went today, I got to delete all those apps from my phone. I was like, season's over. That was 15 weeks where I'm less than effective and I'm done. Um, But we look up and 14 weeks. I try to know that when I'm doing my one thing, my phone's on do not disturb. Um, when I'm with my kids or my family, you don't have the phone at the table. You don't have to not have it with you all the time. But if you went into a movie theater, please tell me you're not one of those people that's on their phone in a movie theater, right? So there are times when we know it's not socially acceptable. Just start making a stand. Like, all right, when I'm eating dinner with my loved ones, I won't be on my phone. If I'm reading books to my children, I'm not going to be on my phone. Um, if I'm doing the thing that matters most to my career, I won't be on my phone. There's a real cost to multitasking. There's a human cost to relationships that you multitask around too. And I can't battle the engineers at Google and Apple 100% of the time. They get paid bajillions of dollars to distract me for good reason. They're very good at it. And I want some of the benefits of it, but I'm not going to check my email before I look at my goals. Like there are tricks that you can learn to kind of stay in your zone and you don't have to be focused all day. Just a couple of hours every day. Remember, it's the tortoise, not the hare. If you're really being focused for just a couple of hours a day around your priorities, you're going to do great. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I mean, sometimes it is easy to feel like a rat in a dystopian future with this constant like stimulus feedback and just the need for this little shallow bit of stimulus. So there's definitely some need for setting boundaries there. I did want to ask specifically about what Gary's schedule is like. I feel like people like Gary are a great representation of disconnecting effort from outcome because clearly Gary cannot be a hundred or a thousand times busier than your average agent, right? Just mathematically, it doesn't work that way. But I'm curious as to how Gary's role in the company has shifted over the last decade. It seems like the pace of change has really increased. And we heard him talking earlier this year about some of the new things with um, technology, Keller Cloud, getting into mortgage insurance, property management. It seems like this a lot of things to be overseeing and thinking about. How would you describe Gary's official role within the organization? His number one job has always been vision. And he will bring accountability to what he feels are the top priorities when they show up. Um, his favorite role is to be a coach and a trainer. And so we see him there a lot, running the masterminds with our top agents. Traditionally, over the 18 years I've worked with them, he's given that area training, coaching, and the agent business more focus than anything else. The last three years, true to the book, we asked the question maybe five, six years ago at a mastermind, we were talking about competitive models. And Gary's like little offhand remark was, um, 
who is the business who could put you out of business? Whatever your answer is, you've got to beat them to the punch. If you aren't willing to kill your you know, darlings to those sacred cows, to slaughter them, um, they will for you. Um, so you can be attached to your mission. You can be attached to your values, but your business model has to evolve or you will go out of business. And so you ask anybody in the real estate industry, who's the business that would put the number one franchise real estate company out of business? And they're going to say technology company. So what have we become? A tech company. And it's not been easy. It's been a lot of ridicule, but I've watched his calendar. I bet he spends more than 80% of his time with our tech team now. Wow. And he is not not naturally inclined to a lot of technology. He uses a month at a glance paper calendar. Um, He's very adept now. But when he started, he was just reading books and he was handing them out to all of us. He's like, okay, this is where we're going. We better get educated fast. Um, I can look at the shelves. I've probably got 30 books on AI, machine learning, different tech companies that we can model. Um, And he expected all of us to get on board. And of the when we started the journey, we had maybe 180 employees. We've got probably 320 now. Of the original 180, I bet 70 are left. Because if you could not adapt as an individual performer, um, you were probably going to get left behind. Most people chose to check out. It's not like we fired all those people. And just said, hey, I don't want to have to relearn my job. I came here to do X. Um, so they chose not to evolve. And there are plenty of places they can go to do that. Uh, it's a whole different group of people I'm working with than I started. So like I said, probably 80 to 90% on what's clearly the one thing. Um, he can't wait to get back to the writing room, dude. Like I miss him. I used to spend a lot of time with him. I get very little time now, but he's living the book. Wow. Fascinating. So this is a great manifestation of the idea that so often we feel like our accomplishment and our achievement predicated upon courage will allow us to stop having to exercise courage. This is a manifestation of getting to the pinnacle and then jumping off of another cliff. And I feel like so much of the industry is kind of waiting with holding their breath, wondering, all right, so Gary is talking about all this technology stuff. How's it going to go? Where is it going to land? I think there's an overwhelming sense of like, don't bet against Gary Keller. But at the same time, there are a lot of unknowns in terms of what this is actually going to look like in the future. All that is incredibly fascinating to me. He's not omniscient, right? But I'm not betting against him. Very dedicated and he's very focused. Yeah, like, like I said, betting against Gary Keller seems like a horrible idea in, in general. <laughs> I think most people get that. When I think about your average agent, as we come to a close, I just wanted to get some gutter answers and what I feel like are some big questions. And the first one was for you is, what is the fundamental difference between an agent and a, a business owner? Nothing. It's a mindset issue. If you approach real estate, like I'm going to be a salesperson, you'll be a salesperson. If you approach it saying, I want to build a business, you will become a business person. Um, Not everybody's guaranteed to make that journey, you know, from an individual contributor to succeeding through others, right? Which is how, you know, I, then we, then they, which is kind of the simple definition. But we've tried to design everything we do to help people on that journey. Because if people aren't growing, they're probably not fulfilling the things that they want to fulfill. They might be comfortable, um, but our mission is to help people grow and we can try to get out of their way. And that's why we wrote the Millionaire Real Estate Agent. Um, That was really about helping people go from being salespeople to being business people. And that's a million copy bestseller too. And it was just something that showed up at the right time um, for the right audience and it represented our values. Love it. 
Great answer. Follow-up question. What is the number one reason that the one thing doesn't work? Well, it's execution. I've not found any example that we could not mastermind and troubleshoot a solution for. Um, I don't think that the one thing is the only approach to success. Don't get me wrong. Um, I do think that it works. And I'm not going to argue with it because it's a simple approach. So I've seen people um, self-sabotage is probably the number one thing. They fail to say no. They can't deal with the chaos of focusing on their one thing. And the reality is, it's kind of like uh, I was talking to a guy about getting on a keto diet. And he goes, you know, if you can just be really good for like four to six weeks, you get up enough momentum that you don't have to be so strict. And I think life is like that. I think if you can get on board kind of pretty hardcore in the beginning, you can be living the 80% of the one thing and getting a huge percentage of the benefits without having to be super focused. But a lot of people, they just can't deal with the chaos um, in the beginning of focusing on one thing and they can't deal with no. So those are probably the top two things that sabotage people. Mindset. Love it. Hey, final question of the interview. Jay, in your opinion, are entrepreneurs born or bred? Struggle with this is I've got one of each in my family. There are people who were born to move fast and take action, and they typically need someone who's complimentary around them to succeed. It's probably 20% born and 80% bred. I think that if you teach someone the right skills, they can run a great business. I'm not in that 20% that's naturally going to be a um, go off and start their businesses. I've started plenty. If you understand the game and you don't have ego, then you can bring the people and you can think big enough to include people that bring the things that you're missing. And I actually look at some of the wealthiest people on earth and I have more in common with them than the classic entrepreneur. Um, they tend to be introverted, right? We think about these power players being people-driven and all of that. Um, a lot of the people who are the wealthiest are very contemplative and a little bit introverted. They did need that other element in their business. I guarantee you, you go look at the CEOs who run a lot of their businesses and they look like that. So I think there's more than one approach there. Um, I'm choosing the, I can envision it, I can hold it accountable, but I'm going to need help. Um, and there are some people that are more naturally going to be a self-starter. They could run a lot longer by themselves than I could. I have to think bigger. That's a really thoughtful answer, man. Thanks for sharing. Um, hey, thanks so much for coming on. This has been great. I really appreciate your time. For folks that want to learn more, obviously, go buy the book, The One Thing. You can get it on Amazon.com. What, what else? Where else can folks kind of keep up with what you're doing on an ongoing basis? Um, I think the, the one thing.com uh, is with the number one. Is definitely where we have all things one thing going on. We have a few events a year. We do goal setting retreats, that sort of thing. We also have a podcast that my partner, Jeff Woods, um, hosts. And that's a great way to kind of experience the book for absolutely free. And we have all kinds of free resources. So I definitely go there. And my name's pretty easy to Google, right? Jay Papazan. There's only one in the United <laughs> States. Um, I don't have any team that's managing my social media. You'll notice I'm not on it a whole lot. But when people reach out, I try to be responsive as I can be, and I'll respond. Hey, thanks for your time, Jay. Really appreciate it. Stay in touch. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Your feedback makes this a better show, and the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we mastermind with the best in the industry.